Hi, this is Steve Nerlick, and this is Steve's PhD, episode 15, I Wrote Some More. The story so far. This is now year five, although let's remember it's a part-time PhD, so arguably it's really just the start of year three. As is now well recorded, I have decided to finish this whole thing via thesis by publication, because why go the easy way when an elaborately more complicated solution presents itself? Anyhow, I've just submitted the fifth of the six publications I need. But when I say publications, they're not all actually published. In fact, only two are. The third planned publication, a book chapter, just awaits the book's first print run in June, so that's almost done. The fourth, another journal article, I've just resubmitted after responding to reviewer comments. As is fairly standard in this process, there were two reviewers. One said it was pretty awesome and should be published, though I would have to make a whole bunch of changes first. The other wanted a whole bunch of different changes and stayed on the fence about whether it was awesome or not and whether it should be published or not. Again, this is fairly standard. It's unusual for any reviewer to give an unqualified endorsement. Anyone who says, Dude, this is brilliant! Don't change a word! usually doesn't get asked to review any more papers. I am kind of hanging on the outcome of this fourth one. It's been submitted to what's pretty much the journal in my field being international education. While it sounds like they liked what I submitted, it is the journal, and maybe the journal just strings you along for a bit before telling you your work isn't quite good enough for the journal. Of course, we're not talking nature here, but if you do work in international education, you'll know which journal I'm talking about. Anyway, That's the current status of number four. Number five happened quite suddenly. After I had submitted a chapter proposal, and it got accepted, I then got my submission deadlines mixed up, so what I thought was six weeks to go was actually two weeks to go, and boy, that was quite a two weeks. But I got it done and submitted it before the deadline. Number five is another book chapter, And it's about studying in China, Australian students' number two destination after the US. Regular listeners might recall that this was the subject of last episode, when I briefly became an international student and in China. Number five hasn't progressed as far as number four. For now, it's a solid and submitted draft, but I've had no reviewer comments back. It's just out there. Being a book chapter, the biggest risk it faces is that they just decide to cancel the whole book because it never gained the momentum needed to get it off the ground. But while everything is going well, it's maybe going just a bit too well, and I can see some potential stumbling blocks with publications 4, 5 and 6. Statistically speaking, something should go wrong at some point in such a long, plodding six-year journey 
despite best laid plans. But until it does go off the rails, there are some best plans that are being laid. No one gets a PhD without a healthy dose of paperwork. All of which has nothing to do with writing your thesis. My supervisor recently called a landmark thesis panel meeting, a meeting which involves all the folk who are going to assess my thesis. At the meeting, we all agreed I should fill in a whole bunch of forms to gain the approval for me actually doing thesis by publication, and we all agreed on a final title, and we all agreed I'd probably be submitting it in the next 12 months. Submitting isn't quite the same as finishing, although it certainly means you're getting close. Once you submit your thesis, there's a few months over which the review panel may ask for a whole bunch of revisions. Although for thesis by publication, there's not a lot they can change because most of it is either published or on its way to being so. So, 12 months from now, I could be just about done. Unless, of course, something goes off the rails. Anyway, I've still got my sixth publication to write, and that will gobble up a big chunk of the next 12 months. Number six is also going to be a journal article, and hence my fourth, since the other two are book chapters. Right now, this sixth paper is mostly just a glint in my eye. But I know it will be about my survey, which I'd talked about a few episodes back. In a nutshell, after a long process of trying to get people on board, I suddenly had 600 survey responses, where a good three years of previous attempts had got me about 20. Endless persistence might not always work, but ended persistence never does. Anyhow, I now have myself a moderately robust survey sample, and over the last few months, when I wasn't writing publication drafts, I did get around to crunching the data. Surprisingly, all that data crunching has just ended up supporting the null hypothesis. What's a null hypothesis? Well, classical experimental design requires you to form a hypothesis. For example, while lots of students study abroad, surely science, technology, engineering and math students study abroad for different reasons than humanities, arts and social science students do. And surely students who study in exotic locales across Asia choose to do so for very different reasons than students who go and study in the USA or the UK or Canada. Well, according to my research, not really. I plugged all my numbers into a chi-squared analysis and nope. No significant difference at p equals 0.01. This means there was a 1% chance that what I found occurred by chance, but since the data was supporting the null hypothesis, I might as well say that there was a 99% chance that I found nothing. But, what the heck, this is science, at least social science. So finding nothing is often as important as finding something. I think my findings suggest we should be rebasing our understanding of what studying abroad is really about. Firstly, 
Consider the whole philosophy about why it's important to get students to study abroad. If you just study at home, it's all a bit the samey. You just learn more about your own culture and your own culture's work practices, and you just end up reinforcing that culture and those work practices once you graduate and undertake a career in your specialist field. But, theory has it, if you go and study abroad, it's a total game-changer. Your mind is jolted into all sorts of alternate worldviews about things you had previously thought common and familiar. Your days become filled with ow moments, as you realise that people in a foreign land do things completely differently, and you also realise it's not because they're foreign, it's just that there is another way of doing things, and it's an entirely valid way. Indeed, if you stay overseas long enough, you begin to realise that actually you are the foreign one, your various beliefs and ideologies are just as bafflingly strange to the locals as theirs had seemed to you. So, in that context, it doesn't really matter if you study science, technology, engineering or maths, or indeed arts or business or basket weaving. When you go overseas, it's those ow moments that change everything. But at the same time, I can't help thinking, is that it? I mean, back home in a standard teaching environment, you've got to design a curriculum, choose your pedagogical model then build a lesson plan, and then evaluate everything after it's all over. But apparently, with study abroad, all you have to do is load the students on a plane, and their lives, as well as our future economic prosperity, will be changed forever. So, I'm not really sure I like everything that I've found out here. The saying that travel broadens the mind has been around for a long time. If that is the only goal of studying abroad, you'd be justified in wondering if it's worth filling your study program with a bunch of optional study abroad units. Why not just get your degree done and then take an overseas holiday? And this is perhaps what the 85% of Australian undergraduates who don't study abroad are thinking. Making studying abroad a rite of passage before you get a degree probably would make the world a better place, if only because you're less likely to start a war with a country where you made a few friends. But if all we're doing is putting students on planes and then ticking a box, this does not sound like a world-changing education revolution. If we do want an education revolution, and we do want more than 15% of our undergraduates studying abroad then perhaps we should go back to basics and design a study abroad curriculum, a study abroad pedagogy, plan some learning objectives, and then evaluate if the students really did learn what we hoped they'd learn. All these ideas are starting to look like my thesis conclusions, since finding a null hypothesis suggests there's something not quite right here. As to how all this will go down with my thesis assessing panel, well, stay tuned. Steve Nerlich, PhD candidate.